Good morning. It's a joy to see all of your faces here this morning. I want you to know that I remember you often in my prayers. And I rejoice in the Lord and the work that He is doing and has done in your life. I look forward to year after year of continued growth and maturity for all of us in the faith. I look forward to the fact that He is preserving us together so that we can walk alongside of each other in this marathon. Because it is a marathon, it is not a sprint. Uh, even though sometimes it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant, um, it is still just a marathon. So slow and steady wins the race in this gospel race. And I am so thankful that he is slowly and steadily forming all of us into the image of his son. I pray as we continue to go on that that will be the case for all of us. That as we are discouraged by lack of growth or things in our lives, that we, we stop, we trust the Lord, we trust that He's going to work out the plans in our lives, He's going to make us into the person that He wants us to be, and that we pursue Him with all the fervor that we have. I pray as it seems like we're going in a sprint that uh, we uh, rejoice in the ease of that moment, don't take it for granted, and continue to pursue Him as best as we know how. But most importantly, that we just trust Him with our lives, trust Him with our church, and in everything that He may receive the glory. I'm so encouraged. I am so thankful. I'm so uplifted by you. Uh, and I pray that the same can be said by you about everybody in this room. Would you pray with me this morning as we open up this time in the Word? Gracious God, You allow the sun to shine on the evil and the godly. The rain, the rain rains on the evil and the godly. Lord, I pray as we hear this message today, we understand, God, that it is, our, it is not our responsibility to play God as it pertains to those who do wrong to us. But we are to trust You. We are to understand that You are in control. And that if any vengeance will happen, it will be from You. That all of Your plans will be worked out. That the righteous will be preserved and the, just, and, and the unjust will be punished. And that we trust You to do all of that. You are sovereign. You are perfect in all of Your ways. Nothing can be hidden from God. Help us to live both practically and spiritually with that knowledge. Help us to trust you in an irrevocable manner because of that knowledge. Help us to love you. Help us to follow you. Help us to give you the glory for all that you're going to do. Even when we cannot see the exact results of your plan and your will. Help us to endure to the end, to the glory of the Lord, for the sake of the church. Help us to obey. Help us to trust. Help us to follow. 
For all of this, we give You the glory and the honor. You are the one who deserves all of our praise. We pray and ask these things in the matchless and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have spent the last few weeks defining love in action. Christianity in motion. And what it means for us as believers. What we have found and will further see is that true love is almost always counter what the world defines as love. In a selfish world, love is selfless. In a zealous for self world, love is zealous for the working of the collective. Zealous for the working of the body. Love is patient in trials. When everything within us says, find a way out. Escape. Love is patient. Love endures. Love is hopeful. And love is believing. Love is trusting in the Lord instead of seeking our own happiness or getting what we think we deserve. Almost every characteristic of Christian love is opposite of the advice that the world would give you. In a, on a side sermon here, this is not necessarily related to our sermon, but if you are looking for marital advice, if you are looking for friendship advice, if you are looking for advice on jobs or your career moves or whatever it may be, <coughs> go to Christian people. Go to godly people. Don't just go to Christian people. Go to people who you know and have seen give spiritually founded godly advice. Because even Christian people can give you advice that is not godly. Because it is not founded on the objective truth of God's holy word. Don't go to non-Christians and expect to get Christ-honoring advice. The world says, get yours. A non-Christian says, find your happiness. Find your peace. Take your rest. You deserve better. The Bible says, endure. Hold fast. Be patient in affliction. Wait for the Lord. Trust in His plan. Let God lead. Now we see Paul with greater emphasis. Show us how Christian love and affection is so starkly different than what the world has to offer. It is counter-culture. Almost everything the Bible says will counter what the world will tell you. And as the world continues to shift away from at least embracing biblical Christianity towards hating it openly and publicly, it will be easier and easier to distinguish between believers and non-believers. It will be easy to see how biblical, or much easier to see how biblical Christianity runs counter to the culture. For example, teaching uh, 
Christians teaching people to save money, to be generous, teaching Christians that your money is not your own, but it is the Lord's and not spending all your money on selfish gain or to build up your own personal uh, kingdom that runs so far counter to the culture that when you teach somebody that it's easy to see that this is a message from God teaching a young person to save their self for marriage to be holy and pure and abstinent and 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 sexually and morally pure has always been counter to the culture but more so now than ever when you're more of a outsider than ever if you or, or even a, uh, a, a lunatic if you pursue holiness in that way. Telling people to go away from electronics and spend quality time with each other. Telling people to learn to say sorry in an over-affirmed world. Spending time with God as opposed to hoarding up time for yourself. Teaching people to disagree but not be hateful. These are all ways that biblical Christianity runs counter to the world. And now Paul gives us another one that is much like the ones that I have mentioned. And that is how our love runs counter to the culture of this world. <clears throat> when we love our enemies, we are doing the opposite of what is expected of us. And a love like that will have no choice but to have gospel impact on those who observe, but especially the one who receives that love. So I think Paul is asking us, he's pleading with us to be counter to the culture of this world in our love. And I believe we do that when we love our enemies are we, by loving our enemies when we do what is unexpected. We love our enemies when we do what is unexpected. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. <coughs> Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. All of these things are counter to what the culture would tell you to do. Luke 6 says, But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful. Even as your Father in heaven is merciful. What a way to live that is so foreign and so unexpected. And when we live this way, we are being truly empathetic. We are showing that we can accept and not reject. That we do not immediately need to push away. This behavior only comes when we try to relate with our enemies as Christ did. So I think that's the first idea under doing what is unexpected is empathize with our enemies. Paul lays out several principles for showing empathy to people. And many of them are based on doing what is 
unexpected. Now, just for a reminder, I want to define for you what empathy is. Empathy is the ability to identify with or understand another person's situation or feelings. Paul here is using all of these uh, examples of how we should define empathy in our life. How we should relate to others. How we should try to understand a person's situation or feelings. He starts off by defining empathy by, by saying this. Bless those who curse you, who persecute you, and do not curse them. What is, more, what is the more expected thing that we can do to those who treat us poorly than to bless them? Than to show love to them? When we show kindness, when we show love to someone who treats us poorly, who persecutes us, who curses us, what we are actually doing is we are displaying genuine Holy Spirit driven affection is there anything more obviously spirit driven than to do op than to do the opposite of what our flesh wants to do if our flesh wants to drive us to curse to find revenge the spirit stops it the spirit places love where revenge should go it places love where cursing should go is there any more th is there anything more obvious of a spirit-driven affection than love when we should curse. Love when we should persecute back. Love our enemies. Love those who persecute us, who revile us. Friends, there will be an ever-increasing opportunity, amount of opportunities to prove this type of Christianity, to prove this type of Holy Spirit-driven love. It is commanded by God but that does not make it easy. That does not make it easy to do. This type of love is costly. It denies self. It denies personal needs. It denies this innate feeling that we need to be, we need to get retribution. We need, this wrong needs to be made up for. It is not only do what is expected. But loving your enemy is crazy. It is deemed as crazy. But friends, I want you to know. We develop some enemies over time. And this type of love would save marriages. This type of love would open doors to new friendship. This type of love would open doors for the gospel and it would gener and it would earn generally mutual respect from the citizens of this world. Imagine the shock of our adversaries when we respond in love and not hate. I spoke at the University of Memphis's uh, BCM a few years back and uh, I spoke on Isaiah 53 and it was the wounded you know, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And this guy took a beeline to me after it was done. And it was confrontation from the beginning. See, they give free food, so everybody comes. It's believers and unbelievers. And he took a beeline. That's good, right? He took a beeline for me, and it was immediately confrontation. And I could tell, I kind of was looking over his shoulder as he was talking. I could tell the leader was a little hesitant. He was worried. He was like, what's going on here? And I just saw that this was not going to be a debate. 
That's what college age people want to do anyway. Some people, it's a whole life, but college age people want to do anyway. I, I realized immediately it was not going to be a debate. And so I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like this. I'm not going to convince you otherwise, but I do know this. I do know more than what you're trying to convince me of. This verse tells me of a God who loves us. Of a God who is willing to die for our sins. And I don't always meet conflict in the right manner as you have witnessed over the last few years. But this time I did. And I met conflict with love. And the leader comes up to me later and he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He does this every week. He does it. I was like, you don't have to apologize. You don't have to apologize. I didn't try to debate him. I just tried to love him. That's the only thing that's going to win this person. That's the only thing that's going to win this person. The message of Jesus to his disciples is that they would, they would be hated for following him. Specifically, he said, the world hates me and naturally they will hate you. But Christians have been given a command, an objective in their heart, and a longing in their heart because of the love of Jesus to respond to the world differently than the world would respond to them. And I think Paul, knowing that he would be persecuted, knowing that the, we would be persecuted, he is offering this advice on how to empathize with our enemy. And the first way to empathize with our enemy is not to do what they would do. Is to where when they would curse, you bless. When they would strike back, you don't strike back. It's natural to strike back to those who are hurting. What is your child's response when they get hit and they hit back? Well, they did it to me. That's their natural response. But the first way to do something that is counter what they would expect is to empathize. To try to figure out where they are coming from. Friends, maturity says, I'm not going to strike back. Right? Maturity says, I'm not going to strike back. I can't strike back. Godliness says, I'm not going to strike back. I can't strike back. I'm going to love. Just because you withhold doesn't make you a godly Christian. That just makes you a mature individual. Maturity says, I'm not going to strike back. Godliness says, I'm not going to strike back. Instead, I'm going to love. Instead, I'm going to bless. Listen, friends. Imagine instead of scheming and spending all that time planning as to how you can get yours you spent time scheming and planning how to bless those who curse you. Imagine if we spent all of our time and energy figuring out how to bless instead of curse. Imagine how we would turn the world upside down. We need to empathize with our enemies. We need to know and trust that generally people aren't just jerks, that they're just going through something. We need to figure out how to bless those people. Instead of spending time scheming, we need to spend time developing love. How much could we do in the church, friends, if we spent time developing love to those we disagree with in the church? 
than figuring out ways to prove them wrong. Or figuring out ways to get one up on them. Or figuring out ways to get them back. Paul says, you want to do something godly? You want to do something that is only spiritually driven? Bless people instead of cursing them when they curse you. He also says rejoice with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Not only are we not to curse them, but we are not to celebrate their failure or their sorrow. Instead, we are to relate to them on a level that causes us to mourn with them. This is mourning with our enemies or to rejoice with our enemies. I don't think this instance, now we're called to do this in other instances for the body of believers, and I think this applies to the body of believers, but specifically, Paul's message here is how we respond in the successes and the failures of our enemies. And as difficult as it is, we need to work to pull our, or lift our enemies up and not to keep them down, to pull them in and not to push them away. Paul says, not only do we not curse them, but you bless them. And also, if your enemies succeed and it's not done in in an ungodly and evil way, we rejoice in their success. When they fail, instead of celebrating their failure and saying they deserved what they got, we mourn with them. He says, don't curse them, bless them, rejoice with them. And mourn with them. Some of us are, some of us, we deal with our enemies in a cordial way, but low key, we're happy when they fail. Low key, we're happy when they mourn. Well, they got what was coming to them. I mean, I, we all knew it was headed that way, right? The Christian who rejoices in the downfall of his enemy is worse than the unbeliever who is an enemy. Because the Christian is led by the Spirit of God to bless those who curse us. And the unbeliever is devoid of the Spirit of God. The Christian who rejoices in the downfall of his enemy is worse than the enemy himself. The Christian has a higher standard of living. The Christian is motivated by the Spirit of God. The Christian is indwelt by the love of Jesus Christ. And we answer to a higher authority. Also, as it pertains to, in just in general, as it pertains to joy and success of anyone, comparison is the thief of joy. If we sit there and look at all the things that other people have and all the things that we don't have in comparison, we will rob ourselves of the joy of contentment in Christ Jesus and all the things He has given us. So as a general rule, we should celebrate the the legitimately gotten success of others, especially those in the body of Christ. Excuse makers and unsuccessful people are always trying to find reasons while other people are successful and they are not. And they will spend all of their time and all of their energy making excuses as opposed to finding ways to be successful in their own life. Cowards make excuses for their failures. Cowards belittle the successes of others. Winners and godly people find ways to be successful the next time. 
Winners and godly people are content in the, pay, in the place that God has them now. We rejoice when others rejoice, even our enemies. We mourn when others mourn, even our enemies. Live in harmony. Live in harmony. Be someone others want to be around. We will have enemies, but we don't have to go seek after them. We don't have to go find them. Christian, if we have an enemy, let it be because you are a friend of the gospel, not a friend of conflict. We must look to make more relationships than we destroy. Do not be haughty, he says, but associate with the lowly. Do not be prideful, but associate with the lowly. We can do this because there is no worldly position that is lower than completely depraved and without hope in the world. And that's where we all were. We can associate with the lowly because of our former sinful state. Jesus chose the lowly and despised things of this world to bring him the most, most honor. Therefore, no one is beneath us. If we have differences, we should look for our, our differences as an opportunity to grow. To know more about different people. Know more about the way things are for other people. As opposed to just assuming because they are this way for me, they are this way for everyone. Let our differences be an opportunity to grow. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, he says. This goes back to the sober judgment of ourselves. It pertains to not thinking too highly of ourselves and not thinking too lowly of ourselves. It pertains to our comparison to others and how we are treated. How we think too highly of ourselves and how sometimes we think we shouldn't be treated a certain way or something shouldn't happen to us. And sometimes we think we're the, we're, there's no possible good that could come out of what we want to do. We should not think too highly of ourselves. We should never be wise in our own sight. We should always be teachable. Not assuming that, we, that there's nothing we could possibly learn or know. We should be open to new experiences. We should have a Berean mentality where we measure everything against the Word of God as it pertains to our judgment. He goes on to say, be careful to do what is right in the sight of all. Friends, we should lead in a way that is good and is right. We should not be people who are people pleasers and do everything to please everyone. This is, what not, this is not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about gaining respect by being convictional. Doing what you do and believe with the right heart and the right attitude and the right motives and with a clear conscience. And even those who do who disagree with you, at least have to respect you. The average person will respect you for doing what you do with the right motives, with the right heart, with the right attitude. Paul is saying, be a convictional person so that when you make a move, you move. And you know why you've done it. I'm going to make, over the next, as long as my kids are playing sports, I'm going to make a million sports analogies. But when I think about being convictional, I think about our girls softball team and something that they do all the time that frustrates the mess out of the parents is they will half commit to a swing. 
It'll be a pitch that they kind of like or that they necessarily didn't want to swing at. And so what they'll do is they'll go like this. They'll make contact with the ball and it'll dribble in the infield and they'll get out. So I've gotten to the point. I told you how I feel about my uplifting speech to them. I've gotten to the point where I say, find a strike, find a good pitch and commit to it. Commit to it. Believe that what you're swinging at is the pitch you're supposed to swing at. And when you do, swing with everything you've got. This is what Paul's saying about being careful to do right in the sight of all. He's saying be convictional. If this is what you're going to choose to do, do it with everything that you have. So that at least you're believable in the world. We must empathize. We must also seek peace. Seek peace as much as it is in your control. Look at 18-20. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Is our life modeled by peace? Is our life modeled by peace? Peace is a characteristic a lot like I've explained love to you. You can't have peace, true peace, without knowing God. You can have a level of peace, but you cannot have peace like God describes. Peace that allows you to be peaceful even when an enemy is at your front door. You cannot be a peacemaker without knowing God. Some peace is a characteristic that can be found in the world, but true peace is only found in God. And because we as Christians have this peace, we should more naturally be people of peace. And as, it is, as difficult as it is to say, this applies to our enemies. What does Paul say about it? He says, live peaceably. But he also gives this caveat that I want you to hear. As far as it depends on you. As far as it depends on you. Friends, I'm going to tell you, the gospel, the true gospel, is at conflict with this world. And it will be more and more difficult as you take greater and greater stands for Jesus Christ to be in peace all of the time and with everybody. But that doesn't depend on you. The gospel doesn't depend on you. The gospel is in conflict because it's true and the world hates absolute truth. What does depend on you? Being kind, being patient, slow to anger, giving people the benefit of the doubt, not trying to stir up something that's not there, being empathetic, not being loose with your words, but being thought out and methodical. Colossians 4 calls all of this seasoned with salt. Make your words be palatable. 
Make your actions be palatable as much as it depends on you. Listen, the gospel is going to be anti-peace with the world because they are enemies of God. But we can deliver it up in the best way we know how. And let the, and let the condemnation that comes up uh, from gospel rejection be on them and not because we were jerks to them. And not because we were unkind. Not because we were unloving. Not because we were unable to see things from their perspective in empathy. As far as it depends on you. How else do we seek peace? Do not seek revenge, Paul says. Seeking your own revenge here is waiting for the opportunity to get back. Waiting for your enemy to fail. Looking for that shot where they are weak and you can get them back. Paul says, when the time comes to get them back, when the time comes to strike, instead of striking, feed your enemy. Instead of striking, give him water. If you're laying in wait to watch your enemy to make sure they're going to fall, your life is going to be filled with bitterness and disappointment. If again, countercultural says, if we're going to lay in wait for our enemy, we do it so that when they fall, we can lift them up with the gospel of Jesus Christ and a love and an empathy like the world has never known. Give them drink instead of withholding. Feed, nurture, and care for our enemy. When we meet our enemy in love instead of a response of cursing, they are left responseless. Paul says, he uses a, a verse, uh, I forgot the reference, but he uses a verse here. He says, it heaps burning coals on their head. It is like having a fire burning on their head when we respond in love instead of hatred. Hey, listen, have you ever noticed in, in an argument if someone chirps at you and you respond to them in kindness, what does it typically do? Shuts it down. It stops it right there. I want to give you a little secret, friends. People who are looking for a fight... The response they want is a response from you that fights back. They, they thrive off of that. It gives them energy. They're good at that. It's oxygen. It's fanning the flames. People who are your enemy or who are, who are in conflict with you, and when they come at you and you respond back with nothing... Or with love, that flame, it goes out. And that's why it's a heaping coal on their head. Because they only have one of three options. It's burning in them, friends. They only have one of three options. So they either leave the argument alone. Right? That's an option. Or they keep shooting arrows at you. But because it's not phasing you, it falls safely to the side. Or the love changes the way they feel. And maybe a true Christian response comes out of it. Paul says, when you respond in love, it heaps coals on their head. I want to give you a little backside of that, friends. Listen to this. 
when you respond in hate, both of you have coals heaped on your head. The fire is only on them when you respond in love. When you respond in hate, the fire is on both of you. You are only responsible, friends, for how you respond to others when they are coming to you in hatred. You are not responsible to how they respond to you. And you are held to a higher standard, especially when the hatred is coming from a non-Christian. You will be judged by the Lord for your response. Do not seek your own revenge. You know why Christians, on principle, it's a good thing anyway. But do you know why Christians aren't supposed to seek their own revenge? Because we are so confident in the sovereign work of Christ that we know that it's going to happen. We are so secure. Insecure people seek revenge. Secure people in Christ, I'm good. I'm going to seek reconciliation. If I can't find this, I'm letting it go. Because we know that Christ will reward the righteous and He will judge the wicked. We, are, we have confidence in that sovereign position of God. And so we don't need to go out and get our own because God's got us. Do not seek your own revenge. But trust that the Lord is going to constantly work out His will. And the last thing we'll go through really quickly. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. Friends, we are spiritual beings who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the enemy has no place in our hearts. And as Christians, when we allow anger and revenge and retribution in our lives, we are being overcome with evil. We are allowing the Spirit of God to be pushed down. And we are allowing the Spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience to be preeminent. It's the most natural thing to do to let our flesh take control. Do not be overcome by evil. Being overcome by evil would be to immediately respond when met with trials, when met with persecution. I'm going to tell you, being someone who's relatively quick-witted, I would probably say that in tough times like this, I might be overcome with evil more quickly or more regularly than I am with good. Proverbs gives us some perspective on this. It says, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. A gentle answer turns away wrath, But a harsh word stores up anger. He who covers over an offense promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. An angry man stirs up dissension. Do not let evil overcome you. 
In an argument, you are only responsible for your response. That is it. When someone treats you poorly, when someone persecutes you, when someone treats you in an ungodly manner, you are only responsible for how you respond. And then knowing that, the Bible, throughout all of the Gospels, throughout all of the Bible, calls us to respond in love. That's it. It's as objective and simple as that. The Bible doesn't say, get yours. You deserve this. You don't deserve this. The Bible says your Savior didn't deserve the cross, but yet he took it. Live like him. The Bible says he didn't deserve the flogging and the beating. He didn't deserve the spit and the ridicule and the despising, but he took it. Be like him. His response was love. As a matter of fact, on the cross, he says what? The most gracious response. He says just a few things, but one of them that relates to today. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Listen, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. The man who wrote this letter was overlooking the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And Stephen, as he's dying, his last words are, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Is it possible? Is it possible that Paul sat there and saw those words and a change began to happen in his life? Is it possible that the love of Stephen so deeply rooted in those who stoned him that they came to Christ? I believe it is. You want to know what overcoming evil with good is? It's loving when you ought to... When you ought to curse. It's helping. When you ought to. Rub it in more. It's seeking the good. Even of our enemies. As a Christian. We're called to do this to everyone. But how much more in the body of Christ. How much more, friends, should we let idle words and gossip fall from our tongues away from us and not to someone else's ears? How much more should we meet those in the church, the local body and the body in general with kindness and gentleness and understanding, trying to first understand where they're coming from, trying to second see if there's something going on in their life that we can help, that we can be a part of before we just judge their initial reactions. And also, friends, teaching those that we love what love actually looks like. If someone is treating you poorly in the body, maybe it's because they have not been met with a love that you could show them Right now. That you could give them right now. Instead of looking at mistreatment as how could they do this to me? We could look at it as a teaching opportunity. 
to, or at least a point of remembrance so that they could see that the love of Christ is in you and this is how it should be demonstrated through them. Overcome evil with good. That's how God has treated us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every believer ever, the evil in our hearts, the wretchedness of our souls has been overcome and has been bought with a price by Jesus Christ. Will you draw closer to Christ in this way by loving your enemies, by blessing instead of cursing, by forgiving as he has forgiven? You're so good, Lord. And we are so grateful to know you so that we can know this. We are so grateful to follow you so that we can follow you all the way to Mount Calvary and live. Watch that example and live in the same way. We can die to ourselves in such a way that causes us to love even those that hate us. Help us to live counter-culturally. Help us to live in a way that is opposite what the world expects, what the world demands at times. Thank you for loving us in that way as the perfect example of love. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.